Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. We're here with Alabama. Hi, everybody. T.K. Coleman. Holiday cheers all throughout the year. Ah, yes. Flag day is right around the corner. <laughs> my, my, favorite, my favorite day. It's the only time I ever buy gifts. I buy everyone on the team a flag. Yeah. Well, you can get the flag-themed Christmas tree. Yeah. Ah, flag ornaments. We got the rest of our team here as well. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, a.k.a. Danny, Danny Unleashed. Yes. <laughs> Danny Uncompromised. Danny Unchained. Oh. <laughs> Danny Unknowable. <laughs> mm. We got so much to talk about today. <laughs> We're going to start with your callers, with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our show, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or email a voice memo, voice recording right from your phone. That way you get that crystal clear quality that we love to hear. Mm. You can send that to podcast at minimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your question. Our first question today. Is from Jessica. Hi, my name's Jessica. I am from Northern Vermont. Um, I live in New England, which lends itself to needing a little bit more clothing, like snow pants, hats, gloves, etc. Uh, I also work in home health, so I wear scrubs and t-shirts and sweatshirts. So my problem is I still feel like I have a lot of clothes and I actually wear about 80% of them. I read a lot about going through clothes that aren't in your hamper, but most of my clothes regularly are. Uh, I don't necessarily have an attachment to clothes as fashion's never really been my calling. Uh, this causes me to really like to wear things that are kind of worn out and it feels more worn into me. Um, I just enjoy being comfortable. Um, what I don't enjoy is kind of the mountain of laundry I have to do almost every week and a full feeling closet. Um, I recall, I think at one point, Josh saying something along the lines of, you may wear all your jackets, but does that mean you really need six of them? Um, sometimes I feel like, yes, all of my jackets, you know, serve a purpose. Like I've one for work. I have one for skiing. I have one for fall. I have one for spring. Um, and then I kind of feel overwhelmed by having all of these items. Any advice for somebody who ends up actually wearing most of their clothing, but also sort of feels overwhelmed by the amount, but has a hard time letting go because every piece serves some type of utility? Let's talk about your attachment to clothing. If it's overwhelming, it's clutter. Because let's face it, your attachment to physical things is not just physical, it's mental, it's emotional, it's psychological. If they're getting in the way, not just in your closet, but they're getting in the way of your mind, then it's clutter. And Jessica, I totally relate with this because after I started simplifying my life, the first place I started was my closet. I often think it's one of the easier places for folks to get started. Because 
Ryan, you've mentioned this before. The average person throws away a certain number of pounds of clothing every year. Oh, yeah. 81 pounds of clothing every year, even though 95% of it could be reused or recycled. I mean, it's it's crazy. There was another study that was done where uh, basically 6% of people admitted they had, or they said that they had worn every article of clothing at least once, that everything in their wardrobe. The 94% had, had almost $300 worth of clothing they had never worn. So most people like... Jessica here have clothes in their closet that Mm -hmm. they don't wear. And I would say with Jessica, the overwhelm, because she talked about 80% of it always wearing, 20% never wearing it. Like maybe that's the 20% she wants to to focus on. Maybe that would relieve some of that stress that she's feeling. That's right. And what I've noticed, because she's right, I did say, yeah, if you have six jackets, just because you wear them, we have something called the duplicates rule. Just because you wear them doesn't mean that's a great idea to hold on to. They could still be getting in the way. Mm -hmm. However, I think there's a flip side to that as well. I own two pairs of jeans. I used to wear only own one pair of jeans. Oh my God, you're exposing yourself. (laughs) That was actually the problem. I got a hole in the crotch. (laughs) And I'm like, I need to get these sewn or whatever. I should have a second pair of pants. So yes, You might have six and you wear all of them and it makes sense to get rid of three of them or four of them or five of them or all of them. But also, maybe you need more than one of a thing. Mm -hmm. She mentioned that she wears scrubs all the time. I love having a uniform and you can have some variety within a uniform as well. You can have a Mm -hmm. bunch of different color scrubs Mm -hmm. if you want to add some variety. But it's okay to have more than one thing. That doesn't mean you're attached to it. You're using these things because you find them to be useful. We say love people and use things. And Jessica, I think you may not have the same problem that you think that you have. I'm going to give you some boundaries here in a moment. But first, uh, TK, I'd love to hear what you have to say for Jessica. Well, this makes me think about the phenomenon of the golden handcuffs. Golden handcuffs aren't just about high paying jobs that also happen to be really stressful. Golden handcuffs refers to anything that's actually valuable but it makes you feel imprisoned. Mm. And so there are some things in life that have value, they have use, but they restrain us in ways that we really don't like. So I can't tell you what to do with your things, but I can give you a question to ask. The question to ask is not, are my things useful? But is my use of these things creating more freedom in my life or compromising the freedom that I really want to have? Yeah. Yeah. And what you're doing there is you're helping someone set up a boundary, right? I've got some boundaries for you as well. Jessica, download our free minimalist rule book. You can find it at theminimalists.com. It's right there at the top. You can just download it for free. In that rule book, there are 16 rules for living with less. I want to cover two of those with you right now. And I've got some additional rules. Now, these aren't actually rules. We tricked you because these are rules that are adjustable. They're boundaries. They're tools for your own life. Obviously, the first one, the seasonality rule, this works perfectly for clothing. Think about right now, it's springtime when we're recording and releasing this episode. And so, have I worn this item in the last 90 days? We also call it the 90-90 rule for this reason. And if you have worn it in the last 90 days, give yourself permission to hold on to it. If you haven't, though, here's the next question. Am I going to wear this in the next 90 days? And you've got to be honest with yourself because you can say, oh, yes, yes, yes. Are you actually going to wear it? And that covers every season, right? Because yes, I wore my winter coat 90 day, within the last 90 days. For sure, I'm going to hold on to that. Okay, I haven't worn these shorts in a while, but summer's right around the corner. Yes, I'm going to wear these shorts in the summer. And then I think she has some items, Ryan, that would fall under our 
personal favorite rule, the spontaneous combustion rule. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, because it's the easiest one to use. Like, you can just pick up anything, pick up this pen and be like, all right, this pen spontaneously combusted. How would I feel? Um, well, I've got other pens, so I probably wouldn't go out and like purchase it right away, but I do use my pen. Uh, if it was my last pen, I would 100% go and replace it. So that's just a great little litmus test for all your stuff. So yeah, Jessica, you can pick up any item of clothing in your, in your wardrobe and ask yourself, what, ha- what would happen if this thing spontaneously combusted? Mm-hmm. What would I do? And if you would feel a sense of relief, mm-hmm. oh, that is a sign to let it go. Yeah. A couple more rules that aren't in that minimalist rule book. We have one, it's called I hate that thing rule, but it started out as the I hate that shirt rule. I call it shopping in my own closet because what will happen, especially back in the day when I had all of these different clothes, they were aspirational clothes. And I would have mm. some shirts I really, really, really liked. I liked this shirt, but I never wore it because it was a little too nice to wear out in a regular day. Or, yeah, you know what? I thought it looked great on the mannequin or I thought it looked good in the store under those particular lights. When I got it home and tried it on, I didn't even know I had love handles until I put this shirt on or these jeans on. What am I doing? Every time I put it on, I kind of hate it. And that is a sign for me every time. As soon as I do this now, if I put something on one time and I'm like, oh, it's gone. It's Mm. out of my house and it's out of my life because now it's overwhelming and it's getting in the way. Now it has turned into clutter. If I don't enjoy wearing that thing, then I give myself permission to let go. Dude, the mannequins used to get me all the time because everything looks so form-fitting. And it took me a while to realize that they clip the clothes on the back so they make it look form-fitting. That's what I do with my clothes. <laughs> you should see, I have... Oh, I just I keep forgetting to buy the clips. I have all these sandwich clips on my back right now. That's why I look so amazing. Oh, man, that's awesome. TK, uh, we were talking the other day about the didn't know rule. And this is another rule I think really helps people with their clothing. If yeah. you walk into your closet and you pull out something, you're like, I didn't know I still had this. Oh, yeah, I forgot all about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, imagine if that was a friend, mm-hmm. right? I, I didn't know. I didn't know that person. You know what I mean? Like, how would you feel about a friend who forgot about you? You know what I mean? Hey, one quick thing about aspirational clothes. Aspirational clothes are very valuable, man, if they fuel the fire of the more fundamental aspiration, which is to do the work necessary to be able to fit into them. However, if they're not contributing to that, they possibly can get in the way. Sometimes it's the opposite that can help you fulfill that fundamental aspiration that the clothes represent. You put on that shirt that fits in a way that reminds you of what your body actually is, then you're dealing with truth. You're dealing with reality and that might motivate you to change it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think about Ryan, whenever we have done tours in the past, people would come out, the best dressed people have the simplest wardrobes. Uh, I think about our friend Courtney Carver. She has something called Project 333. And I think this helps a lot of people out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, by the way. And there's a book uh, called Project 333. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And here's basically how it works. TK, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but... Mm. You base, you take, you do a packing party for your clothes. So remember, Ryan did his packing party in our last Netflix film, and yeah. and uh, boxed up everything as if he were moving. Well, you kind of just do that with your clothes. You box up everything except for thirty, your thirty three favorite pieces of clothes, mm. and this applies to shirts, jeans, underwear, accessories, shoes. Thirty three items is all you get, and 
for three months. So you're not getting rid of the other clothes. You're just boxing them up, making them inaccessible for three months. You have 33 pieces of clothing you wear for three months. And so inevitably what happens? You always pick your favorite clothes Mm -hmm. and everything else that is sort of quirky or weird, or I kind of like that, or I'm not sure, or it's not that versatile. We put that in a box. And after those three months, you realize like, oh, I'm dressed really stylishly every day because, and I'm wearing the clothes I enjoy. So now as a minimalist, all of my clothes are my favorite clothes because all the other things that weren't my favorite are in those boxes. And quite often what happens at our events, Ryan, is someone will show up and they'll mention Project 333, and they're always the best dressed person at the event. Absolutely. Like, you have to pick your favorite clothes. You have absolutely no choice. I think it's funny, though. There's something, like, in high school where, in grade school, like, I remember wearing something two days in a row, and I was just, like, ridiculed all day long by those little twerps. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that stuck with me. Yes. And I remember, like, in high school, I literally had uh, 10 days worth of clothes, and, like, I would never, you know, I, like, had it, hanging in order of when I was going to wear them. I could wear, uh, I had three pairs of jeans. I could like alternate those. That that seemed to not like spark any outrage in the uh, <laughs> high school community. But this carried with me um, past high school. And what I've realized is people, adults don't care if you wear the same outfit. Yes. Um, the the what, what really sparked that was when we first started down this road of minimalism, it was, uh, I think it was Nina Yao. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was wearing the same dress for however many days in a row. She did for one full year. One full year. And no one said a word to her. Yeah, and it, was no. a, it was a red sweater. Yeah, red yeah. sweater, yeah. And no one said anything to her. So yeah, it wasn't even something that was, you know, inconspicuous, like black and denim or whatever. Like, yeah, and I think the same thing kind of happened to Courtney Carver when she was doing that. Like when she first did her challenge, she went to work and no one was like, you seem to be wearing a lot of the same stuff. If anything, they're like, man, you've been looking really good lately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And quick lesson on style. Style isn't as much about how much you own as much as it's about how much you own it. When you mm. look at these celebrities, you please don't try to convince me that everything they wear is cute and cool. It's the way they own it that makes everybody want to wear it, which is why you got to be careful when you say, let me get that shirt. And then you look at yourself in it. You're like, oh, it was that dude who looks so good. And it's not the shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jessica, enjoy the Minimalist rule book. You can download it for free at theminimalists.com. Our next question is from Kayleen. This is Kayleen from Burbank. Um, throughout the years, I've moved several times. And every time I've moved and gotten rid of a bunch of stuff, a couple of years later, I always go, oh my God, I wish I wouldn't have given that away. Why did I give that away? And then I have regret about it. So how do you guys suggest dealing with that? So when we talk about regret, what are we really talking about? We're talking about a sense of loss. Mm. But loss is just a story. It's not a reality. Loss is a story. It's not a reality, right? Mm -hmm. Because regret is a byproduct of the stories we tell ourselves. Mm. And so here's what happens. You didn't actually lose something when you got rid of that. You lost the story that you told yourself about that item. A moment ago, we were just talking about the hate that shirt rule. If you let go of a a piece of clothing and you hated it, the story you tell yourself is, I'm so happy I got rid of it. Mm. That's just a story you tell yourself as well. You didn't actually gain anything by getting rid of it. You might have gained some space, but that's also a story that you tell yourself. Mm, And that's why these stories are so empowering or disempowering. That's right. When you transform your failures into strategies for future decision-making, you have wisdom. But when you treat those failures as evidence that you're a total screw-up, then you have regret. 
It's all about the difference in the story that you're telling. It's totally okay to have those moments where you say, oh man, I thought I was right, but I don't like the outcome from that decision. That's cool. Transform that into wisdom instead of using it as a reason to hate on yourself. Yeah. I've heard this question asked um, a few times. I would love a list of like the things that they regret because I would, I'm willing to bet that it's probably not more than a couple items. And the, the thing is, is when we do tell ourselves the story that Kayleen is telling herself, and I've told myself this story too, it makes me hold on to everything just in case, which is like, it, that gives you permission to hold on to everything. Mm-hmm. And if you start down that road, then uh, you're going to have way more items you don't need than you need one, two, five, ten 10 years from now. And the story we tell ourselves before we even let go of it is, I'm going to regret this. Yeah. You say that over and over, guess what's going to happen? You are going to regret it. But if the story is, I'm going to feel so free when I let go of this. Mm. I'm going to feel so free when I let go of this. I'm going to feel free if I could just let go. Now, all of a sudden, I let go of it. What do I feel? I feel free. Mm. I feel free because I let go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is something beautiful about saying, I don't want to live a life that I'll regret. But you can become attached to that, too. And that can become a form of clutter because then you live your life paranoid, anxious about every decision that you make because since it's always possible you might make a mistake, I might live in regret. Mm -hmm. And the way you release yourself from that fear of regret is by trusting in your ability to improvise, trusting in your ability to adapt. I make my decisions not from perfect knowledge, but from an honest understanding of where I am today and from a willingness to change in the future when I get feedback from the outcome. One of my favorite minimal maxims that I have ever said, and I quote myself here. <laughs> Wait, this is Ryan Nicodemus quoting Ryan Nicodemus. Uh, if I die without any regrets, I'm really going to regret that. <laughs> but, but let me unpack that. What that means is like, if, if I truly died without any regrets, it means I didn't take enough chances. Come on. And if I didn't take enough chances, I'm really going to regret that. So it's, it's okay to have a little bit of regrets. As long as you uh, learn from those regrets to, to live a better life and, and to make better decisions, then that's okay. Like regrets are not a bad thing. They don't feel good in, at the time. But like you said, man, like it's something we can learn from. Now, Kayleen, if she's got a list of 100 things that she got rid of and she's like, oh, there's 100 things I shouldn't have got rid of, then I would say, okay, maybe the boundaries that you're setting up for yourself, maybe those have to, you got to revisit those to see um, if you're, you know, letting go of the, of the appropriate things. Or sometimes life just changes. And that's okay too. Like that's, that's a constant. It's always going to change. There are different seasons and yeah, holding on to, holding on to everything though, just in case for those, those uh, seasons that show up or I, I guarantee that would cause more overwhelm than having to replace, you know, something for less than $20 in less than 20 minutes, yeah. AKA the 2020 rule. That's right. The just in case rule. Here's what I'll tell you about regret in my own sense, in my own personal life. I've let go of a lot of things. And I don't regret letting go of any of them. However, there are certainly things I've let go of that I have regret at some point. But if I hold on to the regret, that's when the regret becomes a problem. Mm. So what you're saying is she's so good at letting go, she can just let go of that regret if she wants to. (laughs) Ah, Spot on. That's great, man. Spot on. (laughs) Kayleen, I'm going to send you a copy of our book, Everything That Remains. Ryan and I wrote this almost a decade ago now. Actually, we wrote it a decade ago. It came out almost a decade ago. It's a story about changing the stories we tell ourselves about what it means to be successful, about what it means to hold on, what it means to let go, and the stories that we associate with those. So if you enjoy our podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Everything That Remains. 
Remains. It's my favorite book that we've ever written. Or if you want the book book or the ebook version, I'd be happy to send those to you as well. Our next question is from Josh. My wife and I are moving and we are interested in the packing party concept. But the only way we've really seen it is uh, when someone's living in the their own house. And so we're curious, uh, any tips, any suggestions, or kind of an idea that you guys have to make it successful when we're moving into a new place? Uh, it feels like the tendency when we move into a new place is just to unpack everything and find a home for it. And certainly there's some validity to that, but we're considering not unpacking everything. Uh, we'd just be curious, how would you guys go about doing the packing party concept of leaving things in the box until you need to use them with a new move? This is the perfect opportunity to start over because moving day is the perfect opportunity to start over. It is a physical representation of life change. Now, Ryan, we were doing the Patreon live stream earlier and you were talking about I was 29 years old when I did that packing party and I was kind of excited about it. But then if I had to do it now, maybe I would feel different. And then I pointed out to you that you've actually done a bunch of packing parties since then. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I think that the reason why I have that, like, I don't know if I'd want to do it now is because we have moved so much. Mariah and I have been together 10 times or 10 years. We have moved a total of, I don't know, six or seven times. Mm. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it is what it is. We, we, it, it takes us a little bit to find our, our spot in a city together. But um, regardless, I've kind of upgraded the packing party. So I don't know what you would call this. But what we do now is when we pack things up, like we just start like really questioning every single item. Because the initial impulse when you pack up to move is like, just get the boxes open, get everything in there, get packed up as fast as you can. Where like now we can kind of curate things as it's going in. And then yes, when we get to the new place, we do have a little bit of a packing party because it does take a little bit of time to, to unpack those things. But yeah, if you're thinking about doing a packing party, th- this is the perfect time to do it, Josh. Yes, I, totally great idea. When you get those boxes in the new home, leave them sealed up and see what you and your family, uh, what your household, what items they need. And yeah, give yourself three weeks. At the end of those three weeks, you get to decide what you do with the rest of the stuff in the boxes. Yeah, and that's exactly how the packing party works. You can check out our last film on Netflix. It's called The Minimalist Less Is Now. Ryan walks you through his whole packing party, but that's it. You're pretending that you're moving. Yeah. But if you're not, pretending you're just moving, you're still doing a packing party. And it's really about slowly unpacking only the things that add value to your life over the course of three weeks. And then after those three weeks, you let go of anything that is still sitting in the boxes. And we did this in our last book. I love people use things. I think we had 52 different individuals and families do their own version of a packing party. And so you could either do a one room packing party. So you just like box up. My bathroom's a real big problem area or my kitchen's a real big problem area. And you unpack only the things you need over three weeks or you do a multi-room packing party. I really want to tackle the bathroom and our bedroom or the closet and the attic or whatever it might be. Or if you're really feeling adventurous, get your whole family to do a whole house packing party. You even cover up the furniture as though it's yeah. inaccessible. And then you unpack even the furniture or your comb or your toothbrush when you actually need them. Yeah. And it puts in perspective how many things we own that we never, ever use. And in fact, it's probably just getting in the way. Absolutely. One thing I'll add is that 
a change in where you live is often correlated by a change in how you live. Mm. New places open the door for new possibilities. And so you can not only be intentional with your packing party as you're putting things into boxes out of your old place, can I live with less? But also as you're taking things out of boxes in that new space, how do those things resonate with the way you want to live in this new environment? Mm. Yeah, I think that's important because something that added value before in a previous space may be clutter in your new space. Mm. We've seen that when we've changed studios before and we get more space, you actually sometimes need something different in that space that feels more appropriate. The thing that felt appropriate before feels inappropriate now. Mm. And if it feels inappropriate, well, that's a good sign to let it go. Yeah. Got a question here from Liz. My name is Liz and I'm in Columbus. Um, I found you guys about two years ago. Um, and I felt like I made a lot of progress at first. And then around a year ago, um, I think my anxiety and depression just kind of got worse after COVID. Um, failed relationships, you know, Ohio winter is hard. Um, people disappointing, things like that. Um, so I actually found creating, like crafting, um, you know, wood, paint, metal, glue, whatever. It was my new therapy. So <laughs> I don't have insurance. So it was my only therapy, I guess. But, um, Obviously, creating things and being a minimalist don't exactly align. So I don't know how to keep the sense of peace and calm I get when I express my creativity, but also be a minimalist and kind of offload it when I create it. Um, it just seems hypocritical. I'm often overwhelmed looking at creations or figuring out how to offload them. Um, but the act of actually creating has helped me heal and calm my mind so much. TK, does minimalism not align with creating physical things? Oh, man. Minimalism is not scarcity. It's abundance rightly expressed. As you often say, how might my life be better with less? It's not just the less, but how might my life be better? You get rid of things or you downsize and declutter things only because you're trying to make space for what really counts. Mm -hmm. And so if you're living a life of optimal creative expression and you're delving into your arts and your crafts and your house is filling up with all sorts of delightful tools that you're using and they bring you joy, that is minimalism because you got rid of whatever was holding you back from indulging in what brings you the lasting pleasure that you desire. Yeah, I mean, we're all creating something, you know? I remember at one event, someone uh, is very similar, asked this very similar question about her creation. She's like, I don't want to sell anything. Like, you know, I, I feel bad like selling my art. You know, I don't want to put more consumerism out there in the world. But I just told this woman, I'm like, we're, we're all selling something. Like the question is, is like, what are you selling? Are you mm. selling something worthwhile that you truly thinks at, you think adds value to someone else's life? And I would say the same thing to this question. It's like, are you truly creating something that you think is going to add value to someone else's life? And if you are, that's great. If anything, minimalism helped her realize how important the creativity was to her. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think what she got confused with there is just, I don't want to force anything onto someone because that yeah. is what consumerism does. Yeah. The, hey, you'll be complete if you buy my painting or if you buy this pair of jeans that I created or this shirt that I created, it's going to complete you, mm -hmm. right? Okay, well, we know that's not true, right? But it doesn't mean those things can't be valuable to someone. And so offering something, promoting something even, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You don't want to batter people over the head with your creations. You're going to watch what I created no matter what. Mm -hmm. I'm going to sit you down in this chair. I made a movie and you are going to see it. 
God, that's not going to make any of us feel good. Yeah. TK, yeah. at our last uh, Sunday symposium, you had this great line. I wrote it down for Liz because I thought it was applicable here. You said the joy of being human is found in creativity, not consumption. Absolutely. Just because you're getting rid of stuff doesn't mean you're practicing what is at the heart of minimalism. We become truly alive when we participate in the, in the creative process. That's what makes us human. We don't find our greatest fulfillment in just getting a bunch of stuff that's out there and bringing it into our homes, but it's looking within mm. and tapping into that abundance that's within our own souls mm. and bringing it forth, you know? Mm. Um, and so what you're doing really strikes at the core of everything that we talk about. And one more little thing about this, because this variation of questions comes up a lot. Hey, I'm really experiencing the joys of abundance in one area of my life. How do I reconcile that with minimalism? Suppose I were to say, you know what? That breaks the rules. You simply cannot be a good minimalist and enjoy that form of abundance. You know what you ought to say to that? You ought to say, all right, cool. Screw minimalism then. You ought to say, screw minimalism and I'm going to get on with my life. I mean, why is that so hard to do? Is it because we feel like we have to make YouTube videos? Why? I was a fraud for the past 10 years for finding usefulness in Idea X. No, you don't have to do that. You use an idea for as long and as much as it works for you. And if it runs into a situation where it just doesn't provide value, sit it down until it provides value again and go with what works. You don't have to make a YouTube video renouncing people, disassociating from people who still find value in it. You don't have to be an enemy of it. You don't have to change religions. You just continue to do what's healthy for you. Yeah. I, I would never recommend someone be a minimalist. Like I would never look at someone and be like, oh, you know what you need in your life? Yeah. Minimalism. <laughs> like that is not the flag. That's not the hill I'm dying on with someone. Imagine you handing them a tract with those. Oh the, my God. Yeah. I, but it's just like the minimalist rule book printed out. <laughs> right. Put a little small version of <laughs> yes, it. Yes, this will improve your life. Look, I, I, it's funny because yeah, people think that we are proselytizing minimalism, but really for me, it's I've connected with this philosophy. It started with my stuff. It started with my debt. But as we've done this over the last 13 years and never thought we would go this long, it's like, there's, you can apply that idea of simplicity to anything. And that is what gets me excited about minimalism. Now for someone else, maybe minimalism doesn't excite them. That's okay. There's, we're not prescribing it. We're not trying to say that everyone on the planet should be a minimalist. It's, it's not that at all. What we're saying is, is, Hey, if you feel overwhelmed in your life, especially when it comes to your stuff, this is something that might be able to add value to your life. Like it did ours. It's a description not a prescription. There goes that distinction again. It's an honest way of saying, hey, this is something we're doing. Here's the value we're finding in it. And here are some tools that might be useful for you too. Mm -hmm. But it's not a prescription. It's not a list of shoulds and shouldn'ts mm -hmm. that you stand under as if it lords over you from above. That's not how things work. It's just like basketball. I'm a basketball fan. That's not part of my identity. That's not my religion. That's just an accurate description of something that I like. But if tomorrow I woke up and I found myself spontaneously bored with the sport, I would need to make an announcement or an apology to anybody. I could simply be and enjoy that new form of being without attachment to the label. I love what you're saying there. It reminds me of something Derek Sivers talks about. He identified as part of his identity, his core identity. I'm a musician. I'm a musician. I'm a musician. And he held on to his guitars and his keyboards and you know, his liner notes and all, all of these things that he had created. And he realized several years had gone by and he hadn't played an instrument. Mm. 
I'm a musician only if I'm playing my instruments. Mm. You're creative only if you're creating. But we often hold on to these as part of our identity because they become infused with who I am as a person. And to describe me, I must have the accoutrements. And so if you're creating or you have the accoutrements for creating just because that's part of your identity, it's okay to let go. But if you're actually creating, as Liz said, she creates as therapy. Or if you're using minimalism as therapy or music as therapy, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Liz, thank you for your question. We're going to move on to some social media questions here. This one was originally going to be our lightning round question for today, but this one's from TikTok. Meat Sweats has a question for us. How does hedonic adaptation trap us into trying to fill the void? So let's talk about what hedonic adaptation is real quick. It's also known as the hedonic treadmill. And when you think about it with consumerism, you get some bit of pleasure and it feels really good. You buy a car, you buy a house, you buy a piece of clothing, you buy a watch or some jewelry or a dress or a purse. You buy something and you get that dopamine rush from it. Or the same thing is true with food. You eat that piece of cake or that piece of steak or whatever it is, and it tastes delicious to you, but then you want more and more and more. I just call hedonic adaptation the disease Mm. of more. Because what happens is you adapt to that and you become used to it. And now the thing that was special, once a week we'd have a piece of cake for dessert. Now I'm having it every day after every meal. It's no longer special because if everything is special, then nothing is special. I wrote down a quick minimal maxim for this one. The more you get, the more you want. That's what hedonic adaptation is. The more you get, the more you want. That is the disease of more. I get a little bit, I want more. I get more, I want more and more and more. Instead of identifying how much is enough, we never pause and ask, how much is enough? How much is enough money? How much is enough clothes? How much is enough hours spent at work. How much is enough? Congratulations. How many Twitter followers is enough? Because if you don't know how much enough is, well, then you might contract the disease of more. We talk a lot about David Allen's concept in getting things done. The first step to getting things done is defining what it means to be done. And what if we apply that to the fulfillment that we seek from our possessions? How much is enough? What does it mean to be done? All right, you're trying to get there. That's cool. What does it mean to be there? Imagine getting in your car and you just take off on the highway driving. Where are you going, man? I'm trying to get there. All right, where's there? Mm -hmm. If you can't answer that question, you're going to be driving forever Mm -hmm. until you eventually run out of gas. You got to define what the destination is and how you know you will have arrived. Yeah. Mm. That makes me think about uh, the new way I look at perfection. We had uh, the, the, the... Guest on our podcast, I forget her name, Josh. Kathleen Morgan Schaffler. Oh, thank you for man. Catherine yeah, Morgan so Catherine. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, she talked about perfection in the sense of uh we look we have this definition about something being the ideal version, the perfect version. And she kind of unpacked the original root of perfection. And it really means to be completed. Mm-hmm. So when I look at it that way, I don't look at having a perfect life as in the most ideal life. It's like, how can I have a complete life? And that really starts from 
within. And, and the thing that I wrote down for this, um, for this question was consumerism is a smokescreen for discontent. And that's what happens. It's like we have this discontent that we feel incomplete. So we look outside because we see so many happy people with so much stuff living these awesome lives and going on these awesome vacations. And we think that it's the vacation that makes them happy yeah. or it's the car that makes them happy or it's the outfit that makes them happy or it's the makeup that makes them happy. But really, if those people are truly happy, it has nothing to do with those things. Those things might enhance their lives and enhance their joy, but simply obtaining everything that you see everyone else having, that is not, uh, that's not happiness. Like once you feel complete inside, then then maybe externally there are some things that might be able to like, yeah, add joy to your life. But, uh, but yeah, relying on these things, that is where we get caught up in this, uh, hedonic treadmill or this hedonic adaptation. It makes me think of Pete Rollins' um, Object A about how we all have this object in our mind that we're like, if we just get this one thing, our life's going to be a little bit more complete. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little bit better. And for me, it used to be a Tesla. And like now, I, I mean, there's probably an Object A if I really sat here and thought about it, but I won't waste our time watching you watching me think. Anyway, um, so the Tesla is like, if I got that Tesla, it would be great. And I'd enjoy it. And I'm in LA. But then as soon as I got that Tesla, there'd be something else that I'm like, oh, you know what? Now that I got the Tesla, if I got this other thing, like I'd, I'd be a little bit more complete. And yeah, we got to be careful with those things that we think are going to complete us. Because I promise you, there is no, once you have the basic needs met in your life, there's nothing outside of it that's going to make you any more complete than you already are. Daniel Gilbert uh, from Harvard University has an excellent book on this topic called Stumbling Upon Happiness. And you can check out his TED Talk called The Surprising Science of Happiness if you want a little preview. If you enjoy that, then go ahead and buy the book. You'll love it. But he talks about that very concept, how often we are wrong in the assessments we make about what's going to bring us that joy that we Mm -hmm. seek. And that's a segue into the maxim that I had, which is... um, we, what what I have here, uh, we are rarely as happy or unhappy as we predict. Mm-hmm. Because one of the easiest things to overestimate is the degree to which products can satisfy our deepest needs. One of the easiest things to underestimate is the degree to which we can bring a sense of resilience, creativity, contentment, gratitude, and joy mm-hmm. to even the seemingly mundane moments of life. And I think one of the greatest lessons that the hedonic trap can teach us is that our greatest joy doesn't lie in things, but in the human spirit, the human spirit, which is capable of giving meaning to things, providing the discernment to know the proper use of things and providing the creativity to even create new things mm-hmm. out of no things. I'll tell you that one of the biggest dopamine uh, dips I've ever had is when I got to as far as I did on the corporate ladder and it was just getting worse and worse and worse the mm-hmm. higher I was getting because my mm-hmm. expectation was happiness and it was the exact opposite. So not only was I not happy, but then because it didn't meet my expectation, like it sent me way down. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like sometimes we overestimate. And when we do, that's when we really can get those depressing moments, anxious moments in our lives. The other question I ask myself is, which version of me wants to be happy here? There are two kinds of happiness that we can experience from, say, a vacation. There is the experiencing self, Mm -hmm. and then there's the remembering self. And a lot of studies have been done on this, but quite often what will happen is if your experiencing self wants to experience happiness, you'll go to a calm location, there's a beach, or maybe you're going somewhere, there's a lot of activities that you enjoy. But if your remembering self wants to have a happiness moment, maybe going to Rome and seeing all of the sights, even though it's a little too hot and I'm sweating, I can't believe I had to climb up all these stairs and 
the experiencing self didn't enjoy it nearly as much as my remembering self. So good. Yeah. It makes me think like Mariah and I back in 2015, um, I got paid to go do a speaking gig in Ireland. Josh does not like flying to Ireland. So, uh, we just went the year before, so he was not down to do it. But um, I was like, well, while we're over there, we might as well go to a couple places in Europe. And we stayed over there for you know a few weeks. And every two or three days, we were going somewhere. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to do this to myself again, because you have to unpack. And then you got two days to do as much as you can. And then you pack back up, go to the next place rinse, repeat, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, like, as it was happening, I'm like, why did we do this? Whereas Mariah and I both are. But looking back on it, yes. I'm like, oh my God, that was, trip was so amazing. <laughs> I got so many good memories from it. But I also got a lesson out of it too. Yeah, it's, it's the remembering <laughs> self, actually. like That was yeah. a great trip for the remembering self. Exactly. Yeah. But the experiencing self was like, why aren't we on a beach right now? So stressed Why am I playing volleyball or snowboarding, right? The experiencing yeah. self in the moment, flow state. That is what is important to the experiencing self. The remembering self are like, what are the the sort of what are the, what are those called? Uh, tetons or no uh, pitons in the mountainside mm-hmm. that I can I can attach my memories to. I have another question here. This one's from D on Instagram. How do I let go of military service items like medals, uniforms, and flags without being disrespectful to their service? I get when you. <clears throat> here's the problem when you are afraid of disrespecting someone by letting go, you're actually being disrespectful by clinging because to cling is to disrespect someone. If you're clinging to an item that doesn't give you any value, that's disrespectful. If you're clinging to a relationship because you're afraid to confront the other person, that is disrespectful. If you're clinging to a career that you can no longer serve or no longer serves you, you are being disrespectful. And so I want to be careful here. I want you to reframe the story here. One of the most respectful things you can do is to let go. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me think about what you said with friends. Like if I was friends with you just because (laughs) I was scared that I was going to disrespect you too much. And that's the only reason why we were friends. Yeah. I mean... If, if I flip that around, if you felt that way about me, I'd be like, TK, it's okay, man. Let me go. Like, I'd rather you be happy than make yourself miserable to cling to this friendship. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same thing here. It's, yeah, you just worded it perfectly. But that friend analogy, that's pretty powerful, man. Yeah. And, you know, letting go often feels like throwing away. And throwing away is something that we do to garbage. And it would be disrespectful to just throw these things away. If you just mm-hmm. took the flag and just burned it or dumped it in the garbage can, that would feel disrespectful. It's like when people die, we let them go, but we don't just toss the bodies to the side of the road or dump them in garbage cans unless you're in a true crime, right? Mm -hmm. But we bury them in a way that honors them. We ceremonialize the event in a way that makes it easier Mm -hmm. to walk away feeling like we've honored them. And so the question I would ask is, how can you let go of those items by perhaps transferring ownership to someone who will really appreciate it or to someone who can take those materials and transform it into something, recycle it into something that another person will really really appreciate. It has use and you've got to focus on how you can give it to someone who can make good use of it in order to feel good about letting it go. And Dee, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Well, Sean's going to put a link in the show notes for the Army Air Corps Library and Museum. Because if you do have some military service items like medals, uniforms, and flags, 
I get that you want to give them to someone who can probably do something with those things, right? And so if you have some of that memorabilia that you're not sure what to do with it, and maybe your children don't want it or no one in your family really wants it, you don't want to force it onto anyone else, then you can let the Army Air Corps Library and Museum help out with that. They'll preserve that those pieces of history. You can donate those items there. Uh, they're always looking for uniforms, medals, ribbons, equipment, personal items, paperwork, photos, books, and more. We'll put a link so you can contact them directly. Talk the, about showing respect. Because like they're holding on to it with no, really no respect. It's not an obligation. But now they have an opportunity to give it to someone who curates these things, who truly yeah. cherishes these things and holds them and values them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's great, man. That's a great link. And that's a true win-win. Mm-hmm. You get to let go of it in a respectful way that honors them, but mm-hmm. also in a way where a curator is going to get way more value from it than you ever would. You both get value from this exchange. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why a lot of people have an easier time making sacrifices when they have children. It's easier to give up something valuable when there's another human being involved that you know will benefit from it. Mm. And it's the same with our stuff. It's easier to let go of our stuff when we know that there are other people who will cherish it and they won't see it as clutter. Mm. Yes. We have another question. This one is from Anna on Facebook. You recently said healing is the gateway to letting go. But isn't it the other way around? Healing is the gateway to letting go. And letting go is the gateway to healing. I have a gate at my house. And if you walk into it, that gateway is the gateway to my house. But if you walk out of it, that gateway is the gateway to the world. That's how gates work. So yes, letting go is the gateway to healing. But Mm -hmm. also, healing is the gateway to letting go. Dude, that makes me think some gates only open one way. (laughs) <laughs> and maybe you need to look at which way your gate opens. Like, which way do you need to open your gate? Yeah, that's a great analogy, but it, it is absolutely true. It sounds like a like a circle, like, you know, chicken or egg thing first. Mm-hmm. But really, it's about where are you at in your life? Would letting go really free you? Or are you someone who has a lot of wounds, a lot of past traumas that you need to deal with first before you're ready to, to stop clinging to things? And if that's the case, that, you know, either way, just as long as you're starting, that's what's important. Yes, It it reminds me of something that I heard repeatedly growing up. And it was this idea that if you move to a new place, that doesn't mean you can run from your problems because no matter where you go, you'll still bring yourself with you. Mm. And that's true. But it's also true that new spaces can facilitate new openings within the self. Mm. Sometimes if you can get away from the people and the places that you're most familiar with, you might be able to imagine your life playing out a little bit differently. You might be able to open up to new possibilities in your own life and and reinvent some habits and so on. Mm -hmm. And so the real question is, which kind of change is going to more readily facilitate the growth that I want to have? And which kind of change is easiest for me to make? For some people, it's the new place. For some people, it's changing where I am. So when it comes to healing and letting go, which one's the gateway? The best gateway is the one that's easiest for you to open. Mm -hmm. It might be easier to heal first and then give your permission to let go of that relationship. It might be easier to let go of the relationship and then heal. Pick the one that works for you. And generally what happens is they they both work and it, it fuels the other. Healing fuels your ability to let go. Because when you're not healed, it means what? There's some sort of disease or dysfunction. It could be 
physically, in, in terms of your health. It could be disease or dysfunction in your relationship. Also, your relationship to your stuff, your relationship to your job. And there's a lot of healing that needs to go on there. You might have to let go in order for that healing to happen. Mm. As uh, Anna is pointing out here, yes, letting go is the gateway to healing. But sometimes you have to heal before you feel like you have the energy, the capacity, the resources to let go. And so the more you heal, the more you're able to let go. The more you let go, the more you're able to heal. You're making room for the healing. Uh, our friend, um, oh, oh I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, Ryan. Uh, he just did a TED Talk about that question, what do you do? Oh, you're yeah. asking the wrong memory here, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, what I really loved about the TED Talk that he did is TEDx Reno. Uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I don't know why I'm totally blanking on uh, his name right now. Um, but he did this TED Talk where he talks about instead of what do you do and you give your business title, he goes, why don't you talk about I help people blank? So, mm. a- And what we often talk about is... We support people when they're healing their relationship with stuff. Mm -hmm. That's where the minimalist really started, was supporting people to heal their relationship with stuff. It's healing that relationship through letting go, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, sometimes letting go is the gateway. Sometimes healing is the gateway. Either way, it's totally fine. Yeah. We're going to check in with the... We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream in a few minutes here. So drop your questions and comments. If you're listening to this after the fact and you have a comment you know, for any of these people who are asking questions today, you can just send us a voice memo to podcast at minimalists.com. We will air your comment, your tip on a future episode. Another question here from Emily on Facebook. How can minimalism help me create a balance between life and work, especially with regard to working from home? Work-life balance conforms to work-life boundaries. Mm. I, <laughs> good one, man. That was good. We harmonized. Yeah, we harmonized. That. Mm. <laughs> He's going for the trifecta, me, you, and Mal. <laughs> He'll get there one day. Yeah, I, I do need that harmony in my life. What, what I noticed in my own life when I didn't have work-life balance, it's because I didn't have work-life boundaries. Now, balance is not really creative. You don't create balance in your life. What happens is you disturb your balance by not having boundaries, right? No one who has balance in their life is seeking work-life balance. It's always the opposite. When things fall out of homeostasis, when they fall out of balance, that's when we go looking for it. If you're riding a bike down the street and it starts getting real wobbly, that's the only time you start thinking about the balance is when you're out of balance. And that's because balance is not created. It is the natural state. And so the question is, how do I get back to my natural state? Well, the way we do that is we set up boundaries that are appropriate. And if you don't have appropriate boundaries and you don't stick to those boundaries, well, then what happens? You trample all over that balance. You fall out of balance and Mm -hmm. you start to feel that disease or that discontent or that dysfunction in your work-life balance. Oh, absolutely. I love when you talk about the the work-life balance thing because it is so true. Like we unbalance ourselves and we, we think it's like, oh, well, we have to find that life balance, but it's like, no, we did this for ourselves. We can undo it. It makes me think how um, Jess Williams, who did our social media stuff, Mm -hmm. I mean, she had a kid. She um, came back to work for us and she was out of balance. 
and like something had mm. to give. Mm-hmm. And she called us up and she's like, hey, my life is out of balance. Um, I can't do this anymore for you guys. I love you guys, but you know, I, I have to, I have to take care of my life and I have to become rebalanced. Mm. And we were, I was so grateful that she was able to like take that step and like be able to like admit that to herself because I know she really liked her job. I know she really liked being on the team. It's really hard to give up. And you know, maybe you're in a situation where you do have um, some kind of work thing that's really throwing you out of balance. You may not, you may not need to just leave your job. And I'm not saying that Jess didn't need to do that, but I'm saying like in this situation, like don't, don't just consider what Jess did, but there's a middle ground too. Mm -hmm. So I would ask myself, just like if I was uh, riding down the street and my bike started to wobble, Mm -hmm. I'm like looking at this bike, like, okay, what is making this thing wobble? Mm -hmm. Like what? So from your home, what is getting in the way? What is making your life wobble? And that will help you and guide you to setting up those boundaries in your life. Yeah. Minimalism sets you free from the myth that hours worked equals value created. We have a culture of busyness and hustle. Push, push, push. Sleep only two hours a day. Get up at 2.30 in the morning. Work 80 hours a week. If you can find another 90, work 90 hours a week, 30 hours a day, even though it's mathematically impossible. Because if you really (laughs) want it, you'd find a way to solve that equation. That's the complete opposite of efficiency. Efficiency is about saying, I will try to optimize for the things that make a difference in other people's lives. I will optimize for serving my customers. And one of the great things that going remote has done for a lot of people, it's helped them realize just how much work isn't happening for 40 hours a week Mm -hmm. or eight hours a day. Most of the work that's happening that actually creates value for companies and organizations, it's happening like two to three hours out of those eight hour work days. But why do we, why do, we do it? Because it's performative. Because if someone sees you there for eight hours mm-hmm. looking busy, well, who's going to judge you, right? Especially if your results fall short. But people are starting to go home and it's one o'clock in the afternoon and they say, I want to go for a walk. And they look around and there's nobody to look at them and say, hey, you don't look like you're working. And so they sneak outside feeling real guilty about it the first time. Mm. (gasps) I'm going for a walk at one o'clock in the afternoon. And they go for a walk for 45 minutes and it's the best 45 minutes of their life. They come back home and then they crush it in two hours of work that they never would have accomplished in eight hours. Why? Because they weren't performing. And when you're not performing and playing the theater game of work, You can actually get some real value created. Those type of things have everything to do with work-life balance because the more efficient you can get with your work, the more joy you can have at your home and the better the energy you're bringing to the people in your home. Mm. I like to tell you about a privilege that I've cultivated over the last decade or so. And I didn't always enjoy the work that I did. There were bits and pieces that I enjoyed of it. But one of the best ways that I've found balance in my own work life is to truly enjoy the work that I do, Mm. to be compelled by it so much that I'm able to devote myself to it. If you have a vocation or a uh, creative endeavor that is so compelling that you want to don't to, to devote yourself to it. You're donating your time to this thing and you would do it even if it didn't pay you very well. Oh, what a recipe for work-life balance because you don't feel out of balance, right? Yeah. It's like you're riding that bike and you might be going really, really fast. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of wind, but still you feel balanced. Or you can take a leisurely ride on the bike as well and still feel balanced. But mm. if, if you start to feel wobbly, 
Well, that's a sign that something's out of balance here. What are the boundaries mm. I want to establish? And I remember back in my corporate days, Ryan, you and I, we didn't have any boundaries. We mm-hmm. were on call like doctors. Mm-hmm. We weren't saving anyone. Yeah. Except maybe someone's broken phone every now and then. Or, right. I mean, I had a bunch of retail stores I was in charge of. And so in the middle of the night, I'd get calls, 1.30 a.m., all your alarms going off at the Florence, Kentucky store. Okay, what do I have to do now? Right. Do I have to like get dressed and drive down to Kentucky? And sometimes the answer was yes, because I couldn't get anyone else to do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so constantly having no boundaries was a recipe for burnout. If you don't have boundaries, you will become burned out. If you want to avoid burnout, set up the appropriate boundaries. However, Mm -hmm. you don't want to set up so many boundaries that it's constricting. Also, if you just have boundaries for the sake of boundaries, I'll put a boundary here, boundary, it'd be like putting walls in the middle of this room, a wall here, a wall there, a wall there. Now I can't go anywhere. I have too many boundaries. Mm. What are the appropriate boundaries that make me feel free and I can operate my freedom within those predetermined boundaries that I've set, not a boundary that someone else has set for me? Yeah, and that burnout also leads to bitterness because the people that are judging you, evaluating you, and holding you accountable, they don't know all the ways you've compromised yourself in order to say yes to them. All they know is that you said yes. And when you tell someone you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, that you're going to do something, all they care about is did you deliver on the promise? And they're going to take you to task if you fail to do it. And so if you burn yourself out and you negotiate your non-negotiables just to say a yes that you really can't fulfill and you really don't want to say, oh, think ahead of time about that resentment you're going to feel when people take you to task for underperforming in those areas. Mm. Set yourself up for success as cliche as that sound. I think about my manager at Applebee's who'd always say, set yourself up for success. I triggered myself. However, (laughs) set yourself up for success by making the kinds of promises that you know you can deliver. Healthy boundaries keeps you from being bitter. Mm. And if you give a promise that you're eager to deliver, even better. I can't wait to fulfill this commitment. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, well, I'm doing it because I'm committed to it. Those are the types of commitment. One is like a deep down devotion. The other is a tether, right? And it all depends on your view and the story you tell yourself about that. But are you committing to the things that are a hell yes to you? Because if so, then you don't have to commit to it at all. You feel mm. good about doing it. Let's check in with the Patreon live stream. Do we have a comment, Malabama, from any of our lovely Patreon subscribers? We sure do. Here's a comment from Violet. The interesting thing is I thought minimalism was scarcity and cold starkness until I found you guys. Now I see it's actually about creating space and only having things you need and use. You know what? Minimalism can be about starkness. If you want to live in a stark space, minimalism can help you out with that. If you just want to declutter your home, minimalism can help you out with that. Mm -hmm. You can have a colorful, vibrant, tchotchke-filled home that is still still conforming to the principles or the philosophy, really, of minimalism, right? But also, you can say that about your relationships. If you want to have a bunch of relationships, you can choose them wisely being intentional. And so, yes, minimalism, another word for it is intentionalism or enoughism, understanding what is enough. And what's enough for Ryan is 
different from what is enough for me. What is too much for me may not be enough for Ryan. And for TK, it could be just right. And it's too little for me. And it's too much for Ryan. And that is the important distinction here. It is not one size fits all. I wish it was because I wish there was a prescription that was that simple. Everyone's lives will be wonderful, blissful, complete, enlightened. If you just follow this recipe, but we all know that doesn't work. We had Kapil Gupta on the show and he talked for a whole hour about why prescriptions fail us over and over and over again. One of my favorite episodes we've ever done. And so if you want to live in a stark space like I do, in fact, uh, just yesterday I was I was trying to make it even more stark. <laughs> I'm, I really feel a sense of calm based on the aesthetics of the space that I'm in. Aesthetics are really important to me. I think beauty is essential. I think aesthetics are essential. But what is beautiful to me may not be beautiful to you, and that's okay. In fact, if I were to prescribe where I live to everyone else, they say, this place is too small, it's too monochrome, it's too airy, it's too spacey, it's too much concrete, whatever it might be, it's too black and white. That's fine, but it's not too much of any of those things yeah. for me. Yeah. We need a, a minimalism version or rewrite of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm. You know? <laughs> I was thinking it. about that Let's when you were it. talking about it, man. I think that would be nice. We got to um, put, put the gold wig on TK. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the one. Perfect. It's just right. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so um, one way I like to think about it spiritually is that the spiritual path has two dimensions, the ascetic dimension and the aesthetic dimension. Mm. And I have a funny way I like to think about it. The ascetic dimension is when you can find God in the desert. The aesthetic dimension is when you can find God in the desserts. Mm. <laughs> and I like to hang out with the desserts, mm. right? Mm-hmm. But finding God in the desert means you can find meaning in those moments of like where life is tough or like you're going without sacrifice and so on. And the aesthetic is when you can find God in the sweetness of life. You can find meaning in the moments of joy. In any lifestyle you adopt, any philosophy you adopt, you want to have that balance. You want to have that ability to enjoy the aesthetic moments and the aesthetic moments. You want to have that ability to derive meaning from the challenging times where you have to sacrifice and go without and meaning from the beautiful times where everyone's laughing or you're eating a good meal and you're hanging out and having fun. Mm. As Alan Watts said, The infinite, if it is truly infinite, is not standoffish. It's big enough to include within itself the finite, the small things. Mm. You know what I love about that? I think about the three of us thrown in any of those extreme situations, and I think we would still thrive. Mm. Because it's not about nothing or everything. It's about how we look at the things that we need. Mm. Yeah. In fact... We'll sometimes say that minimalism is not a radical lifestyle. It's a practical lifestyle. Although if you look at the etymology of the word radical, it shares the root with the word root. Mm. And so to to root, getting back to the roots of something, one might argue that minimalism allows us to get in touch with our actual humanity to simplify in a way. Henry David Thoreau talks about you know, the the more you simplify, the easier it is to breathe, the easier it is to live, the easier it is to be who you are, not who the world wants you to be. 
We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream in a moment. But first, Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalist. Now, during the lightning round, this is where we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. And we put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. You can find those show notes at theminimalists.com slash podcast. Today's question is from Van Fleena. Ever since I was a teen, I've had a strong preference for wearing only black clothing. My boyfriend recently bought me a red dress, but I have a hard time wearing it. Do I need to overcome my preferences to live in peace? Ryan Nicodemus, do you have 60 seconds of wisdom for Van Fleena? I sure do. Uh, My pithy answer is this. (laughs) (laughs) The house of your life cannot stand on the foundation of compromised values. Now, the thing is, is with this red dress that this girl does not want to wear that her boyfriend really likes her being in, Mm -hmm. that's the question she needs to ask herself. Is she compromising her values? Because I'll tell you, if Mariah got me a blue shirt Mm -hmm. and was like, hey, um, will you wear this? I really like this on you. And I put it on and I didn't like it. I would be like, honey, I really appreciate that you got me this, but this doesn't feel right on me. I don't, I don't feel like myself in this. Mm. And if she was like, just try it out, just try it out. Even for Mariah, I probably would try it. I'd try it for a week. And if I got compliments on it and changed my perspective, then maybe I would continue to wear it. That's how much I love Mariah. But for as much as I love her and as much as I would extend wearing that blue, sh- blue shirt as long as I could, there might be a certain point where I'm like, it just ain't working for me. I'm sorry. I love you. I gave it a chance. And if she takes that approach with, with her significant other, then probably gonna she he's probably gonna understand i would take it even a step further if mariah gave you the red dress (laughs) 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 can you imagine and maybe you love mariah so much but at some point you would say hey it's unreasonable to ask this of me right and it'd be easier for you to say this is unreasonable with the red dress right Mm -hmm. a little bit different the blue shirt's not that different from what you're doing right now but to her, it does seem like the red dress is so appreciably different from her black clothes. It's unreasonable for him to ask her to wear it. TK, do you have 60 seconds of wisdom for us? If you must be in conflict with others, at least be in harmony with yourself. There will always be people that have a problem with the way you want to do life. What's most important is that you enjoy the person that you decide to be. Your preferences aren't there to be overcome as if there's some kind of obstacle in your way. Your preferences are there to be healthfully expressed. And if someone is saying to you, you don't love me or you're not a good friend unless you abandon the healthful expression of your preferences, I'm tempted to say, let that friend go, but I would at least give them an opportunity to understand what real love and friendship is by saying, hey, that doesn't fit right on me. That doesn't feel right on me. I love the hell out of you. And I would appreciate it if you get that opinion of yours, the hell out of my life, so we can get on with having a good time together. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And he did it under a minute, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) For the first time in minimalist history. (laughs) I think it's the first time I ever went over. (laughs) I didn't even say my maximum. Like my maximum, I was working my way up to it. But I heard the ding and I had to stop. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I love what you had to say about preferences. So give me 60 seconds and I'll, I'll wax philosophical on it. <laughs> Clinging to preferences is a great way to get dragged away from peace. You're not wrong for having preferences. Mm -hmm. In fact, we all have preferences, right? But the more preferences we bring out and then we cling to, meaning we're unwilling to change our preferences when they don't really matter to us at all. I have this strong preference. I need to expose it to the world. Yeah. It reminds me of that meme I was showing Professor Sean this morning, or I was showing Danny as well. And it's this guy looking in the mirror and says, now get in there and make this about you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, you? What that's, great. That's, that's what we're good. doing all the time. We're making it about me, me, me. However, here's what I'll say. If he is forcing you to wear this dress, manipulating you to wear this dress, then you don't need that kind of person in your life who wants to change your preferences for you. Mm. I think as Dan Savage would say, he would say, D-T-M-F-A. I'll let you all Google that. D-T-M-F-A. <laughs> if he is pressuring you. And um, I saw this with my own, my wife's wardrobe. Um, when she... She and I first met. I saw a picture of her the other day from back in 2015. Like when we first met, it was her and Ella was like one year old and or maybe Ella was two at the time. And Bex looked like she was dressed like the Hamburglar. <laughs> <laughs> she was wearing like this striped skirt. She was wearing these things that she would never wear today. Mm. And it didn't look crazy. It just didn't look stylish at all. Bex has become so stylish over the last eight years or whatever it's been since I've known her. But I never once said, you should wear this. Now, I will tell her I like the way this looks or oh, that looks really great. She was wearing this outfit yesterday. I was like, oh my God, you look amazing in that. But it wasn't like, hey, you'd look great in this. You need to wear this. Mm. There's a distinct difference in our disposition and the way we feel because she felt compelled, like pulled in a direction of being more stylish instead of being pushed in the direction of being more stylish. And now she's one of the most stylish people I know without ever being forced or convinced that she should be more stylish. Yeah. yeah. Hey, I want to say one last thing about this phrasing here. Overcome my preferences to live in peace. Mm. Mm. Right? Because you don't ask yourself, how can I overcome my preferences when everyone's leaving you alone? You only even ask that question when you're thinking about must I overcome my preferences to live in peace? And what I want to say is, I don't think any of us need to overcome our preferences to leave, live in peace. We need to overcome our fears towards having the difficult discussions that lead to peace. Mm. Peace is not this passive default state that's defined by the mere absence of contention, disagreement, and conflict. Peace is the product of what we create by being willing to take life's difficulties head on. When we face the contrast and we say, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to tell you how I really feel. I'm going to say no to you, even if that means we might have a challenging conversation that follows. That's how you get to peace. It's on the other side of that. Yes. Mm. Yes. Man, That's what beautiful. A, what a great observation. It makes me think like preferences are kind of values in a way, really. Mm. Because I don't really value aesthetics. Like it's not something that is a huge deal to me, but it is a huge deal to me for the clothes that I wear. And uh, even though that is a preference, like, yeah, that is, 
I, I agree with you. It might be very unreasonable, especially if it's causing, uh, if it's disrupting the peace in the house. Like it is kind of unreasonable for her partner to keep coming at her, yeah. asking her to wear a red dress that she's vehemently against wearing. We have a free values worksheet over at theminimalists.com slash V. You can download that. And in that worksheet, it helps you identify the four types of values. And I agree with you, right? I think the surface level values, which are the third layer of values, they're sort of our preferences. Mm -hmm. And our preferences change over time. And so that portion of our values often changes as well. Mm -hmm. Because the things that were your preference when you were three years old, might be appreciably different at 43 years old. I don't know. I still wear Transformer underwear. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't think her boyfriend is going to be mad, though. It's just speculation. No. I think if she say, baby, I, I appreciate the dress, baby, but I, I just can't wear this. This is just not me. Yeah. I think he's going to be cool. Yeah. yeah, that's my guess. Yeah, it'll be fine. I think you're right. Yeah. And if he's trying to coerce you into wearing the dress all the time, then that says something about the dynamic of the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always okay to let go of someone who is trying to coerce you because coercion is not consent, but also convincing, persuading, manipulating. Those things aren't consent either. That's unloving. I want to check with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one or two things going on in the life of the minimalist. Last weekend, we had a team building event. We all went out and shot each other. It was so much fun. I still got bruises. Just, well, this one right here. Do you get any bruises? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I can't show you where they are, though. <laughs> we, we'd have to upload this to Rumble or something. Yeah. So what did you think to get your first time paintballing? Yeah, well, like I, well I, I can't confirm my personal participation in it. Uh, but, you know, one of, one of my observations is that uh, Danny Unleashed, you know, he, he's an interesting paintball player. That's all I'll say. You know, there were certain players sometimes who was calling for uh, paint checks and Danny just shot him anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I tell you, I'm, I'm not bitter about it at all. The rules are weird. The rules are weird. The biggest lesson I learned from the whole team outing is do not get into a shootout with Malabama. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know why. I knew it from the very beginning. Man. Like, she had she had game face from the very first time she put on, like, her little uh, mask before she, like, put it over. She's like ready to go. Her and David make an amazing team. Uh -huh. and, and I'm so glad that David has Malabama to protect him if anything ever goes down. She's a silent killer, man. Oh, she's an assassin. Yes. And I heard everybody say, I thought she was out. Like everybody who got shot by Bama said their last words was, I thought she was out. And now mm. I'm out. Yeah. She's just the silent killer. Uh, <laughs> I, did, I, I didn't tell you this when we were playing, but the whole time when I was hiding, like I literally was like, I have to assume Mallory is right around one of these corners. <laughs> and like, that's how I played the entire game. Like, okay, she's, she's right there. I know she is. So I was playing paranoid the whole time. <laughs> well, we did, uh, when we started, we did three on everyone. So it was like three on nine or three on 10, yeah. whatever the, yeah. the number was. It was just me, Ryan, TK versus everyone. But I set up one rule. I said, it's racist to shoot TK. So we just won every time. <laughs> it was super, super helpful. I'll tell you, Mallory's uh, husband, he was like sliding into yes. obstacles. It it was amazing. Unbelievable. <laughs> and everyone did an awesome job. Jordan was out there pretending he didn't get shot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I lit Danny up a bunch and he was also like, oh, none of it hit me. <laughs> it all bounced off. It's fine. Dude, shout were, out to Beulah. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Beulah yeah. came Beula out. was the MVP. Yeah. Beula I was hoping was her six foot seven husband would show up so I'd have a, a big target that I could hit. But uh, <laughs> yeah. he was yeah. at home watching Jeezy. There's son and yeah. uh 
Man, what a beautiful yeah. time. It was the weather was perfect. Great time. Thank you all for being a part of it. Yeah, it was awesome. One other thing, Ryan and I just got back from Georgia. We were at Georgia Southern University in yeah. the mega metropolis of uh, Statesboro, Georgia, <laughs> which is a quick four hour drive from Atlanta. Right. Not yeah. a problem. It's not, it's not in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> we actually had to wade through a swamp to get there. Oh, they goodness. were awesome. Shout out to all the folks yeah. over at uh, Georgia Southern University. We got to speak there. Uh, they actually opened it up to the public as well. I've never been recognized more than in, I think, Statesboro, Georgia. People were like running out of the Starbucks and saying, <laughs> the minimalist, what are you doing in town? And they're like, so uh, I know you were speaking here. Are you doing any more shows while you're in Statesboro? I'm like, yeah, we're here for an entire month. We're doing a full residency. <laughs> We'd actually love to come to your school. If you want to hire the minimalists to speak at your school, your college, your organization, you can find all of the details as well as a speaking reel, a demo of us speaking over at theminimalists.com slash speaking. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And we're going to check in with the Patreon live stream, Alabama. What kind of questions you got for us? Give us a good one. We have a question here from Joan. I noticed that as I release more things that no longer serve me or my husband, there seems to always be more. I'm not sure when I'll ever feel done. Do you have any guidance on this? Ryan, I love you were talking about this earlier because Catherine Morgan Schaffler was on the show and she talked about the root of the word perfect is perfacere, which means per and forcer, completely done mm -hmm. is essentially what perfect means. And so will you ever be perfect? And the answer is you were born perfect already. All of the things that you've heaped on to your life to add value, they may have added value, but at some point they may imperfect your life. Mm. I think it's most, uh, most noticeable in our clothing because trends happen and things go out of style and you're like, oh, these oversized silver tab jeans, what am I still wearing these? Or Ryan's Janko jeans from our high school days. <laughs> I was my dad would never allow me to buy Janko jeans. <laughs> and in the moment they might have been perfect for that moment, but if something's perfect for the moment it doesn't mean that it's perfect for right now. Mm. And so clinging to it imperfects you in a way. Now will you ever be completely done? No, I wish you would. I wish you could get down to the 100 or 1000 or 10,000 or 14,000 items you could own to have a complete life. But if something ceases to add value, then you're still going to have to let it go otherwise it will turn into clutter tomorrow. Yeah. Sorry. And this expectation that there's a destination, you're clinging to that expectation. You can let that expectation go and be happy where you're at and enjoy the enjoy the ride. Woo! <laughs> no limits to clinging. Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> we'll check back in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, Malabama, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hello, Josh and Ryan. My name is Mandy Bender. I am calling from Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm calling today because I have a great solution for what to do with an old wedding dress, especially if it's kind of outdated and not likely to be worn again. The hospitals in my area have a wonderful program. They have volunteers who take old wedding dresses and make burial gowns for infants. I think this is a great way to honor these children, and I know it is something the families mourning the loss of a child will find value in. Hi, this is Jesse Hazelwood in Austin, Texas, and I was listening to the podcast and a woman commented about what's next. I've decluttered and now what's next? And I think that I've experienced some of the anxiety that I heard in her voice about, okay, now, now what? And I think that I personally still feel the need to veg out and not work and 
but at the same time, I will go and check my email and now that is a joy to me because I've cleaned it out and the emails that I'm getting are telling me that I've got a new podcast or it's my favorite um, shopping site. I really like fashion and researching fashion. And, um, but I get to sit down and enjoy that and not worry about, oh, this isn't clean. My house is cluttered and I need to get up and do something and have that extra layer of anxiety on top. And then also playing my guitar when I'm playing it, I'm not worried about all the things that I need to do. I can actually sit down and enjoy doing the things that I want and and finding joy in my life. Welcome back to The Minimalists. This is our private podcast, and we're going to dive into the Patreon live stream here in a bit. But first, I've got some talk aboutables for you. I've got one in particular, and this was submitted from Sophie from Patreon. By the way, you can just DM us on Patreon if you've got something you want to share with us, or you can send it on over to podcast at theminimalists.com. That's also true for sucky ads or amass it or trash it. It's always best to send in a voice recording from your phone if you want to radically increase your chances of being on the show. We prioritize our voice recordings above everything else. Malabama Sophie sent this in. It was a German article called Tidiness is a Status Symbol. Hmm. You want to read what she had to say? Sure thing. She said, recently, I stumbled across a headline in one of Germany's biggest newspaper magazines, Die Zeit. The article was hidden behind a paywall, so I couldn't read the whole thing. Still, I felt the urge to share the headline with you and hear your thoughts on these few lines. Here's what it says. Tidiness is a status symbol too. People who are mentally ill or who have small children can be easily overwhelmed by running the house. Psychotherapist Casey Davis says that a cleaning rota won't help, only bearing with it. She says, I feel like the headline feeds what a lot of parents often try to tell me when they recite that good mothers have sticky floors, dirty laundry, and happy children. Oh, how I disagree. Please (laughs) let me know your thoughts. With love, from Germany, Sophie. Sophie, correlation does not equal causation, right? And so, yes, you could be a terrible parent and have a perfectly pristine home. Mm -hmm. And you can have a relatively messy home, not a filthy home, but you can have a relatively messy home and still be an outstanding parent or vice versa. You Mm -hmm. can have a really tidy home, be an outstanding parent. I will say this, minimalism or tidiness or cleanliness, whatever you want to call it, often creates space for your children to have more room to play, Mm -hmm. to enjoy their lives more, for you to enjoy them more. Because what are we talking about here? We're talking about calm versus chaos. We can set aside the polarizing tidiness versus messiness or whatever. Chaos isn't good or bad. Calm isn't good or bad. It really depends on what you're looking for, right? If you are going to watch the Super Bowl halftime show, you don't want calm. (laughs) You want it to be chaotic. You want it to be what? A spectacle, right? However, I don't want my home to be a spectacle. I want my home to be calm, peaceful. 
And especially because I have a kid, mm. I, this uh, article conflates two things. It says people who are mentally ill or who have small children, I would argue that having small children makes you a, a little bit mentally ill, <laughs> at least from my own experience. It made me That's crazy uh, when Ella was two and she's throwing things around and messing things up. Even crazier when she learns to help, help when she's about four years old, she starts I want to help with everything. <laughs> and so she's like washing the dishes, which is mainly breaking dishes. <laughs> it sounds like me washing dishes. <laughs> what did you used to say? She was like, she was uh, like auditioning for Al-Qaeda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and they, they decided she's a bit too chaotic for yeah, them. Yeah, she couldn't make the cut. I, I would have loved a title like, tidiness is not the highest priority for everyone. Mm. Or I would have loved a title like, the challenges of being tidy uh, vary with personal preferences mm. and needs. Yeah. But that wouldn't be controversial mm. enough, right? Yeah. I, I, I know the game well enough to know that an accurate, honest title isn't going to get eyeballs. You got to make it a little bit more controversial. Yeah. Got to turn it into a class war. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Right? It's got to be us versus them. And Status. Yeah. We've all been to homes that are steeped in poverty mm -hmm. and there's no tidiness there at all. I've been in homes that are steeped in poverty. Ryan and I grew up really poor and they were pristine homes. Yeah. I mean, if you saw a speck of dust, you, you better take care of it before they take care of you. <laughs> and so it's true that you can be tidy and be in poverty. I think about um, another Henry David Thoreau quote. He says, the more that you simplify your life, the less poverty. Oh, wait, the more you simplify your life, the more poverty ceases to be poverty. Mm. Because you're not impoverished if you're living a simple life because you don't need all of the things that you thought you needed, right? When you yeah. start simplifying... The obverse is also true. You can be rich and be really messy. I mean, how many rich people do we know whose lives are utterly chaotic? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I went down the headline route too. Because the first thing I thought was, is what's an honest headline about minimalism that's like a, a, a negative thing that says it doesn't work? It would be something like, um, minimalism isn't for everyone. <sighs> or, or some people aren't attracted to minimalism, which is totally true. Yeah. But I see headlines like this. And honestly, like, I don't even, I might be compelled to read the article, but I don't, I typically don't because I know that a headline is just a headline and that whatever argument that they present, it's, it's doing that thing that the media does, which is causing this, um, this division between, well, in this case, the classes. I will say like, there was a friend of ours who, well, he's in our, he's in our world. I don't know if he's our friend, but he wrote up uh, an essay called minimalism doesn't work for poor people. And instantly I wanted to <clears throat> argue or I wanted to be like this, you know, wh what's he talking about? And I read his article and after I read his explanation, I'm like, oh, you know what? I guess he's right. Mm -hmm. With this straw man presentation of minimalism, mm -hmm. he's right. It doesn't work for poor people. What he was saying is my version of minimalism doesn't work for poor people. Yeah. And what you're talking about here is a confirmation bias. So people will click on this if they're looking for a confirmation bias, a mm -hmm. confirmation 
toward their bias, right? Because if you have a really messy life, you say, well, I uh, the reason my life is messy is because I don't have the status of someone whose life is less messy than mine. And therefore, simplifying your life is only for people who have a particular level of status. Mm, yeah, and even though you gave that author an out by saying, my version or his version of minimalism doesn't work for poor people, I would say it's worse than that because we're talking about poor people, first mm. of all, as if we've been delegated with the authority mm. to be the sole spokesperson on behalf of all poor people. This is the difference between talking about mm. poor people like you only read books on sociology versus actually going into spaces where poor people live mm -hmm. and seeing how diverse poor communities are. Yes. There are very few statements you can make about poor people in some highly generalized, oversimplified way. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that so many people make a living sitting in coffee shops and podcast studios making blanket statements about poor people because it makes them sound like the right kind of person. But which poor people are you talking talking about west side of chicago south houston east side of detroit mm -hmm. poor people in those places are very different from one another in terms yes. of their dreams in terms of their struggles in terms of their needs and so this nonsense like poor people are tidy poor people aren't tidy poor people need minimalism poor people don't need minimalism which poor people are we talking about mm. Because it's, poor people just like any other kind of people are people first man mm -hmm. you know? No, you're absolutely right, man. Like all of these headlines, none of them are empowering for poor people. Mm. It's just, if anything, it's disempowering them. Yeah, it's, well, and these generalizations just aren't helpful at and, all. Yeah, absolutely. If you hop on here and say, white people are racist. Mm -hmm. well, how is that helpful in any way? A, it's not empowering, but B, it's true and untrue at the same time. Mm -hmm. There are white people who are racist. There are white people who are like, so what does that mean? If you're saying all minimalists are privileged, well, it's not helpful at all. It doesn't even make any sense, right? Yeah. Let's check it back in with yeah. the Patreon live stream, Alabama. You got some questions for us. Sure do. Here's one from Muna. How do you deal with unwanted thoughts like constantly worrying about bills, inflation, and the realities of living in a very uncertain country like Argentina, where I am? To worry is never helpful. Let me explain why. Even if you have something that is, quote unquote, worth worrying about, the worry itself is not productive. To worry about something is to pray for something bad to happen in the future. It doesn't mean that something bad won't happen. In fact, something bad might happen. Mm. But why punish myself now for something bad that might happen a day from now, a week from now? Let's say I have a surgery two weeks from now. I can worry about it every hour of every day and repunish myself over and over and over. And let's say nothing bad happens. Well, then I worried as a waste of time. Mm. Well, let's, let's say something bad does in fact happen. I still worried and made myself miserable for two weeks because that outcome was going to be the same regardless. My worry didn't prevent it from happening. It's different from, however, being concerned about something. If you are concerned, it's, mm -hmm. a, oh, maybe I shouldn't do the surgery, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that concern is fine. But as soon as I've made the decision, it doesn't make any sense to worry about it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, I worry about bills. I worry about, you know, making my rent or, you know, whatever it is. But for me to help alleviate a lot of those worries or concerns, for me, it's it's a budget. It's like I have that planned out every month with Mariah. Like yeah. I know where our money is going. Um, I still worry because I'm just a natural warrior. I'm naturally an anxious person. Mm. But the more things I put into place to kind of help me manage those fears, because that's really what worry is, um, it helps me 
fear a little bit less. I think there's, for someone like me, there's always an underlying fear. Mm -hmm. So I am even more, uh, you know, uh, more propagating like these tools because that's what I do to help me with that constant underlying anxiety that I feel. Yeah. And saying you don't have to worry isn't the same thing as you are an irrational, immoral person for experiencing worry. Right. Yes. Right. We all experience worry. Mm -hmm. And I think when people say, hey, you don't have to worry, what they're trying to convey is that there is a healthier, more constructive way to deal with the object of your concern because your worries are a clue to legitimate concerns. And you can go about resolving those in ways that are good to you and that actually help you resolve things. Whenever I make an observation like that about worry, I'm making the observation from my own perspective because like Ryan, I tend to be anxious. And I look at the worry, I look at the thought and realize how it is not serving me. Yes, all worries are a type of fear. I'm afraid something is going to happen. Mm. All fears are a type of clinging. I'm clinging to an outcome. I want it to be this way, but I'm worried it's going to be this way. I'm worried I'm not going to get what I want. I'm worried that someone's going to think this way about me. I'm worried about what the potential outcome could be and it not matching my desired outcome. Yeah. But that worry does not, does not ever change the outcome. And so I can let go of the worry and still get whatever outcome that I want to get. Yeah, and here's the thing is you can let go of it and it still might be inside of you. Like this morning, I was worrying about something and I kind of talked myself through it. Like, why am I worrying about this? And then I, you know, kind of ex- explained it intellectually, but emotionally it was still there. But the difference was, is I wasn't, letting that worry control me, I was observing the worry. Like as soon as I let go of it, it was there for me to observe rather than to, for me to live it. Yeah. Remember yeah. a few weeks ago, uh, I'm going to call this our sucky ad segment this week. You can send in your sucky ads to us, by the way, podcast at minimalists.com. No one sent this one in because I saw Bex yesterday. She was on her Instagram. And remember a few weeks ago, I did a little segment. I said, never (laughs) buy anything from an Instagram ad. (laughs) And it wasn't me telling you that. I was not prescribing it. It Mm -hmm. was a reminder. I essentially made a video for myself to go back and remind me, hey, Josh, don't buy anything from Instagram. Mm -hmm. And the first reason was quite often it's very poor quality. But the second reason, which I didn't cover, I want to cover today. The other reason to never buy anything from an Instagram ad is it will automatically repopulate your entire Instagram feed with similar items. Uh. So what does this say, Malabama? You can see the picture Mm. Jordan's going to put up on the screen here. But what did, uh, this is from Bex. Her Instagram is, this is my wife, at Minimal Wellness is her Instagram handle. And then what did she write here? If you're just listening to the audio version of this, here's what her picture says. It says, let's play a game. Which swimsuit ad did I stupidly click on to instantly fill my feed with other swimsuits? And what do you see there, Alabama? Lots of people in swimsuits, particularly women. Uh-huh. And some of them look like models. Some of them look like it could maybe be a selfie. A bit. Oh, my gosh. It's Wait a, a minute. That's Josh's Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's a search Josh, history. Are you, in, are you it, in a two-piece bathing suit in here? <laughs> it actually does look like my Explore page. I'll, I'll be honest. You click on one big butt. <laughs> <laughs> or a hundred. <laughs> one butt. That's all it takes. All it takes. So here's what Bex did. She was like, oh, yeah, summer is coming around. And then she just clicks on one and 
now her entire feed is inundated. Mm -hmm. And she played this little game, like, guess which one that I clicked on? It turns out it was like the top left one. Mm -hmm. I think it's because that woman looks similar to her in a bathing suit. Of of course, she's like, I want you to guess, Josh. And I have clicked, I said the one with the butt. Um, (laughs) But I was just revealing my own preferences, right? right? right. That's what the free market does, right, TK Coleman? Process of discovery. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's it's funny, like I will notice my, uh, you go to the search page on Instagram and it gives you all the pictures and I start to notice these themes. And if it's like something where I'm like, why is it showing me this? I'm like, oh, it's because obviously I'm looking at these things. Mm-hmm. So I literally like, if I want to get something like that out of my feed, then I will stop clicking on it and looking at it. And eventually like the algorithm, it takes a couple of days, but it happens pretty quickly. If you stop yes. looking at it, it'll shoot it out of your feed. But if it's constantly in your feed, there's a reason for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll check back in with the Patreon live stream. Alabama got another question for us. We sure do. Here's one from Pontus. I quite often feel lonely with the minimalist way of thinking and living with less things, obligations and finding what is enough. The people around me still hustle on without this. How can I feel less lonely? Mm. Mm. I wonder what's going on there. Like, are they shunning you? Are you shunning the, shunning them? I I, I would I would say, uh, imagine what my life would be like if I never could talk about minimalism, if I could never share it as a philosophy, if I could never evangelize it, if I could never tell my testimony mm. or spread the good word of it. What would my life look like? It would probably look like me enjoying the things that I do and enjoying the the time and space that is available to me when I don't do the things that I don't want to do. And how would you talk about that to your friends if you couldn't mention minimalism? You'd probably just say, hey, I've got something else going on. Or, hey, I'm not interested. Hit me up for the next thing and I'll think about it, right? Mm. And so I, I think that's a good way to approach people who don't share a minimalistic philosophy. It's to just treat them like human beings, treat yourself like a human being, and talk about your priorities and your rationale for it without feeling like there's any pressure to convert them. Yeah, I love what you're saying, man, because this makes me think of like, you know, I think sometimes people use minimalism to hide behind almost. I'm sorry, I'm a minimalist. I'm a minimalist. Yeah. And like, I, I'm trying to think if I've ever done that in my life, probably. But I don't look at it that way as much as minimalism led me to f- truly understand who I was, what I wanted, uh, what my what purpose I wanted to serve or whatever it is. So minimalism is not the answer to why I can't do something. The answer is, you know what? That doesn't align with who I am as a person. And I don't, I don't do those things. However, if you want to go do this thing with me, I'd love to do that. And if I have a friend who wants to do that and they say, yes, great, then we can go have a different experience. If I have a friend who refuses to do anything different, then that's not really a friend. Yeah. Imagine if we did that with other things, by the way. If Josh invited me out, hey, want to go to the movies tonight? No, nah, brother, I'm married. Right. <laughs> or, 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 or Ryan was like, hey, hey, you gonna, I'm, I'm married too, bro. Right. Like, what, what you trying to hey, say? Hey, TK, you want to go to Chuck E. Cheese's? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. I'm a minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> and we, 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 we went paintballing. I gave everyone only one paintball. So it was right, quite, exactly. quite the challenge. Right? Except for Josh, you got a full canister of them. Yeah, yeah. I was unminimalist <laughs> for the day. Right. <laughs> uh, here's, here's, what I think, Pontus, is you might be afraid of judgment from these other people mm. and or they might be judging you. Mm. And you have to figure out which one it is. It could be that you're judging yourself and now projecting your own judgment onto them. I'm judging me and I'm worried they're going to judge me. Or maybe you're spending time around people who are 
judging you for your minimalism. Mm. And if that's the case, well, you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. Yeah. We'll get back to the live stream in a bit. But right now we've got the Minimalist Home Tour this week. This is number three in our series. You can find all of the Minimalist Home Tours, including pictures of all, all of our homes as well. But this one today is from Maria. And we're calling this one Alabama. I think you titled this one, right? I did. Oh, what a beautiful title. <laughs> On a clear day, you can see forever. I will say this. She's in, is she in Finland? Uh, she's in Estonia. Estonia, okay. Same thing, it. basically. I love right? it. Wow. Like Ohio and Kentucky are the same thing, right? <laughs> can I please get a little Maria? I just saw a kitchen from Maria. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> we got to work our talent, man. We got the talent. Oh, man. We'll get rehearsals going. But that <laughs> was the thing that struck me about this was the view out her windows. And it was just so breathtaking Gorgeous. to me. Yes. So, Alabama, can you describe this for folks who are just listening to the audio version? By the way, if, you're, if you subscribe to the video version, version of the podcast. We send these out to you every Friday. Minimalist home tour from one of our homes or from one of our lovely listeners' lovely homes. Mm-hmm. What are what are we looking at here? So what we see here is a kitchen that's got a lot of natural colors in it. You see a lot of the whites and the walls and the cabinets. Everything kind of blends in so it feels very large and open. You've got these gorgeous hardwood floors that make it feel long and spacious and just a quaint little table right off to the side. The counters are very clear. It looks like you could very easily jump in here and get to work doing anything you needed in the kitchen or at the table. But you also have these beautiful views from the window right above the countertops, as well as what looks like a sliding door off to the other side. So it's beautifully framed between these two skylines of just... I, I can't even find the words to tell you how beautiful it is to me. This yeah. is this is one of my favorites that I've seen yeah, so far. Yeah, it's great. It's one of the most minimalist kitchens I've ever seen. It's super calm and clean. And who needs artwork when you have those types of views? I mean, yes. you, it proves that nature cannot be beat when it comes to art. Mm. If you have a great view, I remember, Ryan, when you lived in Montana at the the place with the, the mountain views, like mm. that was better than any artwork that you could ever have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's funny how, uh, I mean, I know this has been said before, but I think I'm just now getting it. Like, art is trying to imitate nature. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great representation of that. It's inspiring to me. I mean, you've seen my hideous kitchen if you have been a... It's not hideous. I like your tiles. (laughs) I do too. It's so blue. We we, we (laughs) bought this house uh, from the folks who redecorated, redesigned. they, They... recreated this house and rebuilt it from the studs, basically. But one thing that they did was make really ugly uh, tiles in the bathrooms and the kitchen. And uh, for whatever reason, it was aesthetically pleasing to them, Yeah, but it was aesthetically panicking to me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Maria, I love the way you create space for the light. Because those views are going to be beautiful no matter what you do with the space. However, it's possible that some clutter there could just distract from that. I'm looking at the way the light hits the floor. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just it just makes it pop, brings the whole space to life. Gorgeous. Bravo. That's, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. You can send us yours podcast at theminimalists.com. We'd love to feature your minimalist space on a future episode. Alabama, let's check back in with the Patreon live stream. Who has another question for us? This one comes from Yaman. I'd love to hear you guys talk about the phase immediately following your exit from the corporate world. What was that like? And how did you make peace with the aspects you may have loved and appreciated in the corporate environment that you walked away from? 
Well, one of the things I thought I liked about the corporate world was job security, mm. which is a total misnomer. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have job security, especially working for a giant yep. soulless corporation. They give you things like benefits. And if you go work for a small business or you become an entrepreneur or a partner, a small partnership, or you are a solopreneur, all of a sudden you lose all of these benefits and you lose this theoretical security. But that's the story I tell myself. I've lost these things. What if I gained by walking away from that? Oh, I gained a sense of peace. I gained a sense of purpose. I I gained a sense of meaning in my life and in the work that I do. I feel much more compelled to devote myself to the work. I don't feel tethered to the work. I enjoy the work much more. I gained a lot of things that I didn't have before. And it turns out job security is a misnomer because a few years after Ryan and I left the corporate world, guess what happened? That company was bought. Mm -hmm. We would have all been let go anyway. And so... I thought I was secure, mm. but the only way to be absolutely secure is to create that security yourself. And even then, nothing is absolute. Yeah, that's right. Uh, for me, status, and this is both for academia, because I was in grad school once, um, and corporate America. There, there's a certain amount of weight that a fancy title has. There's a certain amount of weight it carries when you've got a reputable title with the company that's been around for a long time, and people respect that. Oh man, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And 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 there was a certain sense of like, hey, when I walk into a room, when I give my opinion, it carries weight independently of what I say. People are expecting substance because of that title. And when you give that up, then your ideas and your insights, your proposals and your suggestions have to stand on their own two feet. And they often have to stand against a tidal wave of, who are you to think that you have something to say? Yes. I don't see those letters that I've been conditioned by society to respect behind your last name. Mm-hmm. And it can be tempting to like run away and try to go hide behind that so you can give yourself permission to have an opinion or have a perspective. But I would say that was the hardest thing for me. And the thing that helped me get over it was just the, the freedom of how amazing it felt to not put up with all the BS that you dealt with just to have that. It's like, oh man, nothing can make me want that back. Yeah. No, the, I agree. The identity was, yeah, super difficult to let go of. It's interesting. So the way I let go of that identity was kind of having this attitude of like, screw you, corporate, because I resented the corporation so much. Uh, the, and a lot, a lot of the people in it, there were some really good people in there too, though. Yep. But what I resented most was how I bought into it so much. And so it, instead of like forgiving myself, it was more like giving my former identity the middle finger. Hmm. And it's funny because it took me a couple years to actually see the good that came out of it. And I'm really glad I did like form this detente with it because I became a better public public speaker because of it. I became a better manager because of it. I became a, a better, uh, better at relationships and um, uh, forming trust and forming uh, respect or, you know, showing someone that I really uh, am invested in them because I was a really good sales guy, but those were all genuine qualities that I had that that corporation really helped me fine tune. Mm. And like now that I have that attitude with it, it's, um, it just feels good to not be so angry at that former Ryan. Oh yeah. That's good. And 
That's so good. I think what we're talking about here is identity clutter. I'd love to do a future episode. We were talking about this this last week about identity clutter. And we all have an identity, but quite often we clutter that identity with a lot of residue from the past. And I want to do a whole episode about that. So if you have questions about identity clutter, Send one of those voice recordings in to podcast at theminimalists.com. I would love to answer your question live on the air. Hey, Josh. Yeah. Give me 20 more seconds on corporate America and leaving that behind. (laughs) Corporatism is a spirit, not a job. You can be a pastor, a musician, an artist, a really great dresser, a stylist, a creative person, and still be a slave to corporatism. Don't think that just because you go to a job without putting a suit on or working at a bank that you're living freely. It's not about what you do for a living. It's about the energy with which you do it, the freedom that you derive from it and that you bring to it. You can be a slave in any kind of job type if you give up your freedom in order to do that kind of work and if you're doing it in a way that makes you feel dead inside. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We'll get to our added value segment in a moment. But first, let's read some more about less. I was going to originally read this on the podcast episode we did with Aubrey Marcus Mm. about monogamy and non-monogamy. And we got to see his perspective from both sides of that and why Mm. he settled on monogamy, why that was appropriate for him. And he brought no dogma to that conversation. Here's Mm. what I learned. Here's what I really liked about being in a polyamorous relationship. And we also got a chance to briefly talk about what is human nature. And I wanted to echo that with this article, and I thought maybe we could have a discussion about it. This is from our friend, former podcast guest, Dr. Christopher Ryan. And uh, this article is called Sexual Monogamy versus Libido. Alabama, what's the subtitle on this one? It's so clever to me. It says, an inconvenient truth. Human beings are erotic omnivores. (laughs) (laughs) You want to read a little bit from this, uh, this essay here, and then we'll comment on it? Sure thing. The problem of flagging libido is not anyone's fault. For most people in long-term, sexually monogamous relationships, a decrease in libido has everything to do with biology and hormones and would be the same regardless of the particular partner. You want an inconvenient truth? Try this one. Human beings, particularly men, are clearly evolved for sex lives featuring multiple simultaneous sexual relationships, or at least the possibility of such relationships— Women are also attracted to erotic novelty, but their response appears to be more subtle and contextual than men's, and thus somewhat easier to suppress. Just pause on that real quick. Mm -hmm. That probably has a lot to do with testosterone um, and the the biological imperative of, well, we eat and we reproduce and we sleep. Those are basically the three things that all human beings are driven to do, whether Mm -hmm. they do it or not. Mm -hmm. And what I like about this is, Chris is never prescribing anything. He's describing the way that we have evolved over time. Return to text. Our species has evolved to be attracted to sexual novelty and to gradually lose sexual attraction to the same partner in the absence of such novelty. The so-called Coolidge effect is well demonstrated in social mammals of all sorts and is old news to anyone knowledgeable about reproductive biology. The evolutionary mismatch between our evolved appetites and the dictates of contemporary society is nobody's fault, and it doesn't imply any particular response is better than any other. It doesn't mean that monogamy is wrong or less enlightened. It just means that it's difficult for our species, for reasons that are obvious once you understand the evolutionary origins of Homo sapiens. As I've said many times, 
sexual monogamy is like vegetarianism. It can be a healthy, intelligent, ethical approach to diet. But vegetarians aren't herbivores. They're omnivores who have decided not the meat, not to eat meat. Bacon will probably still smell good. Boys will be boys and men will be men, despite the many ways our society tries to guilt trip them out of it. Let's stop there real quick. So I think that's the essence of this article. We'll put a link sure. to it in the show notes if you want to check out more of it. But I'd lo- love to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, the TK, do you want to go first? Oh, you can go. I feel like I always like just cut him off. He's like getting, re- getting ready to say something profound. And so I'm like, good. no, no, TK, let me, <laughs> let me, ju- let me just fumble this. Uh, to compare vegetarianism to monogamy um, is, I think that is a prescription. Uh, but, but that's okay. I love, I love Dr. Chris Ryan, and I love. What's he prescribing? Do you think he's he's basically he's basically saying that the way we have evolved um, as as uh, as as primal beings. Mm-hmm. We've evolved to be non-monogamous. Yes. As far as the construct goes, we have evolved to be monogamous. So the prescription is, if you want to go with nature, non-monogamy is the way to go. If you're going to go with uh, constructs, then monogamy is the way to go. Yeah. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with vegetarianism, but, and that's where it gets a little, maybe it's not prescriptive as much as it is like giving a very clear um, not right and wrong because it's not that either, but it's a very clear um, natural and unnatural yeah. a- analogy. So what I'll say to that though is that I don't, I'm not saying that Dr. Christopher Ryan is wrong. Um, I'm just saying that the, I don't, I think there are monogamous uh, couples out there who are, who have incredibly high libidos. Mm-hmm. He brought up novelty. So mm-hmm. let's, let's talk about why mm-hmm. we start to reach towards novelty. Mm-hmm. It's because when, when a man turns, you know, hits puberty mm-hmm. and he is so sexually driven, that sex drive is strictly like genital-based, mm-hmm. genital-based orgasm, okay? Yes. So that genital-based orgasm is only going to take you so far. Mm. And when you lose that pleasure you used to get at 15 and it wanes, at whatever age, it's, all, it's different for all men, then that's where the novelty com- comes in because we're like, shit, we need something different. Mm. And it is not, there is nothing wrong with any novelty. But all, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that it's not, to me, it's not about saying, you can, be, you can be a vegetarian if you want to, but you know that like you're choosing to be vegetarian. Your natural state is to, what I, what I would posit is, is that the natural state is that eventually whatever turns you on 20 years ago is it's going to eventually start to wane. So the question isn't like monogamy, non-monogamy. The question is that novelty piece. It's how are you going to bring something into your relationship mm-hmm. that is going to give you that novelty that you, that you need. And if it's non-monogamy, that's great. If it's, I, I don't know if it's whatever, insert kink there. I don't want to like kink shame anyone. Mm. Um, but, mm. the, but th- there are ways for monogamous couples to, um, if they're experiencing this lack of novelty, there are things that they can bring into that relationship mm-hmm. that can absolutely bring back that that libido and bring in that novelty in the relationship that doesn't have to be non-monogamous. Again, nothing of- wrong, nothing wrong with non-monogamous, but to but to equate it, and again, love Dr. Christopher Ryan, one of my one of my favorite people in the world. Mm-hmm. But to equate monogamy with vegetarianism is it just seems a little unfair to me. What he also said in there is vegetarian might be the most healthy option for you, but, and monogamy might be the most healthy option for you. Right. And so 
I didn't see the butt there so much as I saw, oh, there's, yeah, this might be the most healthy option for you, especially if you live in a society that prizes monogamy and you're worrying about judgment from others. I'm curious, uh, what are some of the ways that you recommend uh, or you've seen people inject novelty into long-term Oh, dude, uh, Tantra is an amazing, I don't know if you've ever like really looked into some tantric stuff, game changer because it it takes because basically the whole preface of tantra which has been around for thousands of years it's like this is where i'm learning this stuff Mm -hmm. it's like hey your your orgasm has been genital based and it's been it's been strictly pleasure Mm -hmm. and connection but there's a deeper level of connection that you can have with someone that you were never taught how to do Mm -hmm. and uh that's the whole tantric thing yeah i mean that's just that's just one idea another thing is you know you've talked about sex toys and stuff like that before that's Mm -hmm. another thing um absolutely and sometimes the couples are like hey let's bring in let's go find another partner let's open this relationship up and that's okay too absolutely yeah Uh, one thing that's really helped bex and my relationship is distance between the two of us yeah notoriously we we live apart 60 percent of the time or whatever 50 percent of the time but because we're both pretty extreme introverts having that distance between us when we reconnect there's a new novelty because I haven't seen you in three days, four days or whatever it might be. And now we've injected some novelty into our relationship. And it looks different for me than it would for Ryan than it would for TK. But we found ways to inject novelty in our relationship so that sex drive and that eagerness is still there. Yeah. Mm. I I kind of uh, agree with a lot of the ways that Ryan sees this, but I'll, I'll just maybe make a couple of distinctions that I think would be useful for thinking about these things. Uh, The first will be a distinction between um, things like instinct, impulse, desire, cravings on one hand, and choice on the other hand. I would say instincts, impulses, desires, and cravings, those are the types of things that can be said to be natural. Choice, however, presupposes intentionality. I I would dispute the presupposition or at least call it into question that there is such a thing as a natural choice. Because choice is when we step back and we consider the ethical ramifications, we make predictions and project projections about what we're going to like more, and we inject intentionality into it. I don't think there's a natural choice. Um, it's like if I, and we also need to make a distinction out in here between like um, stimulation and satisfaction. So um, if I drive up to a McDonald's billboard and I see a, a quarter pounder with cheese on that billboard, that might stimulate hunger in my body, right? Mm. But I'm not going to go up to the billboard and try to eat the billboard, right? Mm. Because that which stimulates a desire is not necessarily the same as that which is capable of satisfying a desire. So just because you can arouse me doesn't mean you can satisfy what is indicated by that experience of arousal. I just want to be very clear. Read the line about the vegetarian. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Okay. While while she's looking at that, let me just, I'll I'll just say real quick. Um, Again, I absolutely love Dr. Christopher Ryan. But the inconvenient truth part is um, it's just a truth. Like libido, libido wanes as you get older. And that libido wanes because we are programmed to find the next best thing. And we do need that novelty. There's no inconvenience behind that truth. But there's a a difference between our biologically hardwired craving or desire for novelty and our philosophical beliefs about what will satisfy that and our, and the oh, philosophical yeah. beliefs that underlie the choices we make to pursue the fulfillment of that novelty. And, uh, we got yeah. multiple hands. And up. we don't, and we don't, and I, and, and I am not judging any of those uh, philosophies, but read, read the vegetarian one. 
As I've said many times, sexual monogamy is like vegetarianism. It can be a healthy, intelligent, ethical approach to diet, but vegetarians aren't herbivores. They're omnivores who have decided not to eat meat. Bacon will probably still smell good. Yeah, so it's just it's that butt part that that really says to me... Say, okay, yeah. so re- restate the sentence with Anne. Uh, let's see. It can be a healthy, intelligent, ethical approach to diet and vegetarians aren't herbivores. There you go. Yeah, and so but, I, but, I, I, I fixed it for you so, so you can be happy. <laughs> but, no, no, but but it's still the same essence. So it's okay. It's okay. I'm not saying he's wrong. Let's I'm, talk about the essence of it real sure, quick. Sure. So the essence of it is it doesn't matter whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous, you're right. still going to be attracted to more than one person. Bacon still smells good to vegetarians whether or yeah. not you eat it. Mm-hmm. And so you can choose not to eat it. What he's saying is it's totally fine to choose not to eat it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's another piece of bacon or another person, you don't have to eat it. And so if you want to, though, you're not wrong for that either, right? And I think that's the essence of this for me is neither one of these is wrong. Being non-monogamous is not wrong. Being monogamous is not wrong. Right. Let's take wrong and use natural. Yeah, and this is this is where I agree with Ryan, where I I, I disagree with the underlying uh, implication that the omnivore part is what's natural, and I, and I would say neither the herbivore or the omnivore is the natural thing. The natural thing is the desire or the attraction that we feel to everything. And if you look at a baby, your idea of what's natural really expands mm-hmm. because a baby is attracted to the marble. A baby is attracted to the paint. Mm-hmm. Like a baby wants to eat it all. A baby ain't making <laughs> these judgments about is it plant, is it meat, is it even edible? Right. A baby is attracted to things that aren't even edible, right? Yeah. And so those attractions, however, are natural. But we're not naturally omnivores or vegetarians. We're naturally human beings that experience all sorts of desires, attractions, mm. and cravings. And we should never condemn ourselves for that. But the moment we make choices about what we're going to do, mm-hmm. we're presupposing a philosophy, we're being intentional, and we're introducing an element that transcends mm-hmm. our natural attractions for both sides of it. Absolutely. And when it comes to diet, the thing is, is like some people do operate better on a vegetarian diet naturally. Like that's what their bloodline has evolved to. Some people uh, evolved to be carnivores. That's what their um, ancestors ate. So that's what they've adapted to eat. You can look at people's canines or a lot of different things you can say. Um, so can they eat meat? Yes, of course they've, they have, they have evolved humans being, they have evolved to eat meat. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, it's to say that monogamy is a non-natural state is the, is the thing where I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying that's, that that's the thing that I'm like, I can't plant my, fl- I'm not going to die on that hill and be like, yeah. and be like, no, monogamy. Sorry. That's not natural. Yeah. And, but, but it's but, your version of natural though. So this gets back to the whole headline thing from earlier is like, Okay, it's not natural according to what Ryan means by natural. What what Chris means by natural, or he's just talking about the evolution. We, we've evolved right. in a way, human beings for most of human history mm-hmm. were non-monogamous. And what he's saying is that's not a compelling enough, just because it's quote unquote natural or evolutionary, that alone is not a compelling argument to be non-monogamous. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be monogamous. I, I think we all agree on that. I think we all yeah, agree on that. I, I, I don't think any of us take him as no. Uh, it's, yeah, this it's isn't. Okay. Yeah, no. It's more. We're, we're, I just, we're, we're, we're doing what's fun, right? We're finding we're what we can debate. Yeah. But, but the thing yeah. is, is like I don't reading this article. Um, it's like to me because, well, I mean, I really uh, 
you know, I, I'm happy with who I am. Like, I, I like who I am. I look in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, dude, I like hanging out with you. But someone who's struggling with this impulse and reads this might be compelled to be like, oh, like this is this is definitely swaying it one way over the other. It's it's not a, uh, and that's what the only reason why I'm even pushing back on the article because to me it sounds like it's trying to sway towards the hmm. more non-monogamous side, which is, nothing is wrong with that. Again, um, but yeah, that's it. Real quick, Sean, what do you got? Um, well, first off, I think uh, somebody who's struggling with this might read this article and be liberated. Yeah, that's true too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But what I was gonna say is, I think it's worth noting that. Um, the just describing the inclination of a species doesn't necessarily say anything about any given individual of that species. Yeah, the true. majority of humans are heterosexual. Not all of them are. Uh, some humans are not interested in sex whatsoever. They might not be interested in romantic relationships either. You can't uh, you can't ascertain what any one person's preferences are just because of how a species evolved. Some penguins are gay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. actually the title of this episode. Some penguins are gay. But let me and help actually help me understand help me understand because um I do want to I do want to understand what you're trying to say because I because the, the the but that we changed to an and is still a, a but in my opinion because it's like me saying me uh, Ryan Nicodemus I am a very genuine loving person and I cheated on pretty much every single one of my girlfriends and you would not believe the amount of cocaine that I used to put up my nose. Like, uh, do you see what I'm saying? No, not at all. That doesn't pour it on. <laughs> Does that not make sense? I hear the cognitive dissonance in that. So, like, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's like, yeah, anyway. Yeah, I yeah. don't think that ports onto this article at all. Okay. Mm. Uh, no, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's an extreme, it's, it's an extreme example, but he's giving a, you could be vegetarian. It doesn't matter. I, we, yeah, it's, it's okay. I, I was I just, I was, on, I was hoping I, I would, I, would I was hoping I would understand him more, but. But now we're digressing. <laughs> For our added value segment this week, the song you hear in the background right now is from Trent Dabbs. He has a new album out. It's called Ojai, Be Where You Are. And since I moved up to Ojai last year, this is the title track from that album. The song you hear in the background is Ojai. And speaking of relationships, Ryan, you and I, when we were in Georgia last week, we were talking, you were talking to me about this app that you and Mariah have been using. It's called Paired, mm -hmm. and it's an app for couples. It's, uh, according to them, it's the number one relationship app. And the Paired Couples app offers a fun and interactive way. This is not a sponsor, by the way. We, no. I just, Ryan's gotten a lot of value from it. So I thought some other couples could get value from it as well. It says it's a fun and interactive way to improve your relationship with daily questions, quizzes, and games. What is your, what's been your experience with it? It's, it's been really awesome, man. It's, so Mariah came to me and she was like, hey, I found this Paired app. And, you know, says that it's, you know, number one relationship app. And I'm like, Okay. Like, I feel like we have a really good relationship. She was like, yeah, me too. But, you know, I just, maybe we could like, you know, have more fun or, you know, whatever. So, um, of course, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, I'm absolutely on board. And it was funny because at first I thought it was kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of silly. Like, you, you get into some of them and you're like, okay, whatever. Like, I know, I know her really well. But then you start like using it regularly and you start to like find out different things about your partner that you maybe didn't know. It's like, I don't know, there's so Mariah and I, we have a date night every week and uh, I forget what question it was, but long story short, like when we are making plans with friends, we move the date night sometimes. And there was something in that paired app that was like, you know, Hey, what's one thing that your partner could do that would really help you um, help you feel like they appreciated and loved you. And her thing was, is like hold date night sacred. 
And I was like, oh, because I thought she was just as flexible as me. Wow, yeah. But it's like, I was like, oh, but we never would have got there if it wasn't for them digging into these different avenues. Most of the time, it's kind of silly. Yep. But there's a little gold nugget here and there that I'm like, mm. oh, wow. Like, I'm, I actually learned something about you. Like, this was a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. like that. And so it's a different way to get to know the person you're in a relationship with or if you're Doc Chris Ryan, the persons you're in a relationship exactly, with. Exactly, yeah. It doesn't have to just be two people. <laughs> paired or or I don't know what the, the multiple <laughs> paired is, right? We'll have to we'll have to check into that and uh, let you know next week. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people or a person, <laughs> but use things and use things yeah. Ooh. Ooh. because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace.
I smile at her as she says softly, What year is this? Are you and me? Beware.